Section 13 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler, edited by Henry Festing Jones. A Painter's Views on Painting, Part 2. Words and Color. A man cannot be a great colorist unless he is a great deal more. A great colorist is no better than a great wordist unless the color is well applied to a subject which at any rate is not repellent. Amateurs and Professionals There is no excuse for amateur work being bad. Amateurs often excuse their shortcomings on the ground that they are not professionals. The professional could plead with greater justice that he is not an amateur. The professional has not, he might well say, the leisure and freedom from money anxieties which will let him devote himself to his art in singleness of heart, telling of things as he sees them, without fear of what man shall say unto him. He must think not of what appears to him right and lovable, but of what his patrons will think, and of what the critics will tell his patrons to say they think. He has got to square everyone all round, and will assuredly fail to make his way unless he does this. If, then, he betrays his trust, he does so under temptation. Whereas the amateur who works with no higher aim than that of immediate recognition betrays it from the vanity and wantonness of his spirit. The one is naughty because he is needy, the other from natural depravity. Besides, the amateur can keep his work to himself, whereas the professional man must exhibit or starve. The question is what is the amateur an amateur of? What is he really in love with? Is he in love with other people, thinking he sees something he would like to show them, which he feels sure they would enjoy if they could only see it as he does, which he is therefore trying as best he can to put before the few nice people whom he knows? If this is his position, he can do no wrong. The spirit in which he works will ensure that his defects will be only as bad spelling or bad grammar in some pretty saying of a child. If, on the other hand, he is playing for social success, and to get a reputation for being clever, then no matter how dexterous his work may be, it is but another mode of the speaking with the tongues of men and angels without charity. It is as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The Ancidei Raphael This picture is inspired by no deeper feeling than a determination to adhere to the conventions of the time. These conventions ensure an effect of more or less devotional character. And this, coupled with our reverence for the name of Raphael, the sentiments arising from antiquity and foreignness, and the inability of most people to judge of the work on technical grounds, because they can neither paint nor draw, prevents us from seeing what a mere business picture it is, and how poor the painting is throughout. A master in any art should be first man, then poet, then craftsman. This picture must have been painted by one who was first worldling, then religious property manufacturer, then painter with brains not more than average, and no heart. The Madonna's head has indeed a certain prettiness of a not very uncommon kind. The paint has been sweetened with a soft brush, and licked smooth, till all texture as of flesh is gone, and the head is wooden and tight. I can see no expression in it. The hand upon the open book is as badly drawn as the hand of St. Catherine, also by Raphael in our gallery, or even worse so is the part of the other hand which can be seen. They are better drawn than the hands of the Ecce Homo of Correggio in our gallery, for the fingers appear to have the right number of joints, 
which none of those in the Correggio have, but this is as much as can be said. The dress is poorly painted, the gold threadwork being of the cheapest, commonest kind, both as regards pattern and the quantity allowed, especially note the meagre allowance and poor pattern of the embroidery on the virgin's bosom. It is done as by one who knew she ought to have, and must have a little gold work, but was determined she should have no more than he could help. This is so wherever there is gold threadwork in the picture. It is so on St. Nicholas's cloak where a larger space is covered, but the pattern is dull, and the smallest quantity of gold is made to go the longest way. The gold cording which binds this is more particularly badly done. Compare the embroidery and gold threadwork in The Virgin Adoring the Infant Christ, ascribed to Andrea Veraccio, number 296, room 5, The Annunciation by Carlo Crivelli, number 739, room 8, in The Angel Raphael Accompanies Tobias on His Journey into Media, attributed to Botticini, number 781, room 5, in Portrait of a Lady, School of Poliolo, number 585, room 5, in A Canon of the Church with His Patron Saints, by Girard David, number 1045, room 11, or indeed the general run of the gold embroidery of the period as shown in our gallery. Footnote. Raphael's picture, The Virgin and Child Attended by St. John the Baptist and St. Nicholas of Bari, commonly known as the Madonna degli Ansidei, number 1171, room 6 in the National Gallery, London, was purchased in 1885. Butler made this note in the same year. He revised the note in 1897. But owing to changes in the gallery and in the attributions, I have found it necessary to modernize his description of the other pictures with gold threadwork so as to make them agree with the descriptions now, 1912, on the pictures themselves. End of footnote. So with the jewels. There are examples of jewels in most of the pictures named above. None of them, perhaps, very first-rate, but all of them painted with more care and serious aim than the eighteen-penny trinket which serves St. Nicholas for a brooch. The jewels in the mitre are rather better than this, but much depends on the kind of day on which the picture is seen. On a clear bright day, they, and indeed every part of the picture, look much worse than on a dull one, because the badness can be more clearly seen. As for the mitre itself, it is made of the same hard, unyielding material as the portico behind the saint, whatever this may be, presumably wood. Observe also the crozier which St. Nicholas is holding. Observe the cheap streak of high light exactly the same thickness all the way and only broken in one place. So with the folds in the draperies. All is monotonous, unobservant, unimaginative, the work of a feeble man whose pains will never extend much beyond those necessary to make him pass as stronger than he is, especially the folds in the white linen over St. Nicholas's throat, and about his girdle. Weaker drapery can hardly be than this, unless, perhaps, that from under which St. Nicholas's hands come. There is not only no art here to conceal, but there is not even pains to conceal the want of art. As for the hands themselves, and indeed all the hands and feet throughout the picture, there is not one which is even tolerably drawn, if judged by the standard which royal academicians apply to Royal Academy students now. Granted that this is an early work, nevertheless I submit that the drawing here is not that of one who is going to do better by and by. It is that of one who is essentially insincere, and who will never aim higher than immediate success. Those who grow to the best work almost always begin by laying great stress on details, 
which are all they as yet have strength for they cannot do much but the little they can do they do and never tire of doing they grow by getting juster notions of proportion and subordination of parts to the whole rather than by any greater amount of care and patience bestowed upon details here there are no bits of detail worked out as by one who was interested in them and enjoyed them wherever a thing can be scamped it is scamped as the whole is so are the details and as their details are so is the whole all is tainted with eye service and with a vulgarity not the less profound for being veiled by a due observance of conventionality i shall be told that raphael did come to draw and paint much better than he has done here i demur to this he did a little better he just took so much pains as to prevent him from going downhill headlong and with practice he gained facility but he was never very good either as a draughtsman or as a painter his reputation indeed rests mainly on his supposedly exquisitely pure and tender feeling his color is admittedly inferior his handling is not highly praised by any one his drawing has been much praised but it is of a penmanship freehand kind which is particularly apt to take people in of course he could draw in some ways no one giving all his time to art and living in raphael's surroundings could with even ordinary pains help becoming a facile draughtsman but it is the expression and sentiment of his pictures which are supposed to be so ineffable and to make him the prince of painters i do not think this reputation will be maintained much longer i can see no ineffable expression in the ancidae madonna's head nor yet in that of the garvag madonna in our gallery nor in the saint catherine he is the saint touch as some painters have the tree touch and others the water touch i remember the time when i used to think i saw religious feeling in these last two pictures but each time i see them i wonder more and more how i can have been taken in by them i hear people admire the head of st nicholas in the ancidae picture i can see nothing in it beyond the power of a very ordinary painter and nothing that a painter of more than very ordinary power would be satisfied with when i look at the head of bellini's doge loredano loredani i can see defects as every one can see defects in every picture but the more i see it the more i marvel at it and the more profoundly i respect the painter with raphael i find exactly the reverse i am carried away at first as i was when a young man by mendelssohn's songs without words only to be very angry with myself presently on finding that i could have believed even for a short time in something that has no real hold upon me i know the saint catherine in our gallery has been said by some not to be by raphael no one will doubt its genuineness who compares the drawing painting and the feeling of saint catherine's eyes and nose with those of the saint john in the ancidae picture the doubts have only been raised owing to the fact that the picture being hung on a level with the eye is so easily seen to be bad that people think raphael cannot have painted it returning to the saint nicholas apart from the expression or as it seems to me want of expression the modelling of the head is not only poor but very poor the forehead is formless and boneless the nose is entirely wanting in that play of line and surface which an old man's nose affords no one ever yet drew or painted a nose absolutely as nature has made it but he who compares carefully drawn noses as that in rembrandt's younger portrait of himself in his old woman in the three van eycks in the andrea solario in the loredano loredani by bellini all in our gallery with the nose of raphael's saint nicholas will not be long in finding out how slovenly raphael's treatment in reality is 
Eyes, eyebrows, mouth, cheeks, and chin are treated with the same weakness, and this is not the weakness of a child who is taking much pains to do something beyond his strength, and whose intention can be felt through and above the imperfections of his performance, as in the case of the two apostles' heads by Giotto in our gallery, but of one who is not even conscious of weakness, save by way of impatience that his work should cost him time and trouble at all, and who is satisfied if he can turn it out well enough to take in patrons who have themselves never either drawn or painted. Finally, let the spectator turn to the sky and landscape. It is the cheapest kind of sky with no clouds, and going down as low as possible, so as to save doing more country details than could be helped. As for the little landscape there is, let the reader compare it with any of the examples by Bellini, Basaiti, or even Sima da Conigliano, which may be found in the same or the adjoining rooms. How, then, did Raphael get his reputation? It may be answered, how did Virgil get his, or Dante, or Bacon, or Plato, or Mendelssohn, or a score of others who not only get the public ear, but keep it sometimes for centuries? How did Guido, Guercino, and Domenichino get their reputations? A hundred years ago these men were held as hardly inferior to Raphael himself. They had a couple of hundred years or so of triumph. Why so much? And if so much, why not more? If we begin asking questions, we may ask why anything at all. Populus volt de Ceppi is the only answer, and nine men out of ten will follow on with et de Ceppiator. The immediate question, however, is not how Raphael came by his reputation, but whether, having got it, he will continue to hold it, now that we have a fair amount of his work at the National Gallery. I grant that the general effect of the picture, if looked at as a mere piece of decoration, is agreeable, but I have seen many a picture, which though not bearing consideration as a serious work, yet looked well from a purely decorative standpoint. I believe, however, that at least half of those who sit gazing before this Ansade Raphael by the half hour at a time do so rather that they may be seen than see. Half, again, of the remaining half come because they are made to do so. The rest see rather what they bring with them and put into the picture than what the picture puts into them. And then there is the charm of mere age. Any Italian picture of the early part of the 16th century, even though by a worse painter than Raphael, can hardly fail to call up in us a solemn, old-world feeling, as though we had stumbled unexpectedly on some holy, peaceful survivors of an age long gone by, when the struggle was not so fierce, and the world was a sweeter, happier place than we now find it, when men and women were comelier, and we should have liked to have lived among them, to have been golden-hued as they, to have done as they did, we dream of what might have been if our lines had been cast in more pleasant places, and so on, all of it rubbish, but still not wholly unpleasant rubbish, so long as it is not dwelt upon. Bearing in mind the natural tendency to accept anything which gives us a peep, as it were, into a golden age, real or imaginary, bearing in mind also the way in which this particular picture has been written up by critics, and the prestige of Raphael's name, the wonder is not that so many let themselves be taken in and carried away with it, but that there should not be a greater gathering before it than there generally is. Buying a Rembrandt As an example of the evenness of the balance of advantages between the principles of staying still and taking what comes, and going about to look for things, Footnote. C.F. The Passage in Alps and Sanctuaries, Chapter 13, Beginning. 
The question whether it is better to abide quiet and take advantages of opportunities that come or to go further afield in search of them is one of the oldest which living beings have had to deal with. The schism still lasts and has resulted in two great sects, animals and plants. End of footnote. I might mention my small Rembrandt, The Robing of Joseph Before Pharaoh. I have wanted a Rembrandt all my life, and I have wanted not to give more than a few shillings for it. I might have travelled all Europe over, for no one can say how many years, looking for a good, well-preserved, forty-shilling Rembrandt, and this is what I wanted. But on two occasions of my life, cheap Rembrandts have run right up against me. The first was a head cut out of a ruined picture that had only in part escaped destruction when Belvoir Castle was burned down at the beginning of the century. I did not see the head, but I have little doubt it was genuine. It was offered me for a pound. I was not equal to the occasion, and did not at once go to see it as I ought, and when I attended to it some months later, the thing was gone. My only excuse must be that I was very young. I never got another chance till a few weeks ago, when I saw what I took and take to be an early but very interesting work by Rembrandt, in the window of a pawnbroker opposite St. Clement Dane's Church in the Strand. I very nearly let this slip, too. I saw it, and was very much struck with it but knowing that I am a little apt to be too sanguine, distrusted my judgment. In the evening I mentioned the picture to Gogan, who went and looked at it. Finding him not less impressed than I had been with the idea that the work was an early one by Rembrandt, I bought it, and the more I look at it, the more satisfied I am that we are right. People talk as though the making the best of what comes was such an easy matter, whereas nothing in reality requires more experience and good sense. It is only those who know how not to let the luck that runs against them slip, who will be able to find things, no matter how long and how far they go in search of them. 1887 Trying to buy a Bellini Flushed with triumph in the matter of the Rembrandt, a fortnight or so afterwards I was at Christie's and saw two pictures that fired me. One was a Madonna and Child by Giovanni Bellini, I do not doubt genuine, not in a very good state, but still not repainted. The Madonna was lovely, the child very good, and the landscape sweet and Bellini-esque. I was much smitten and determined to bid up to a hundred pounds. I knew this would be dirt cheap, and was not going to buy it all unless I could get good value. I bid up to a hundred guineas, but there was someone else bent on having it, and when he bid a hundred and five guineas I let him have it, not without regret. I saw in the Times that the purchaser's name was Lesser. The other picture I tried to get at the same sale, this day week, it was a small sketch numbered 72, I think, and purporting to be by Giorgione, but I fully believe by Titian. I bid up to £10 and then let it go. It went for £28, and I should say would have been well bought at £40. 1887. Watts. I was telling Gogan how I had seen at Christie's some pictures by Watts and how much I had disliked them. He said some of them had been exhibited in Paris a few years ago and a friend of his led him up to one of them and said in a serious, puzzled, injured tone, Mon cher ami, racontez-moi donc ceci, s'il vous plaît, as though their appearance in such a place at all were something that must have an explanation not obvious upon the face of it. Lombard Portals The crouching beasts, on whose backs the pillars stand, generally have a little one beneath them or some animal which they have killed, or something, in fact, to give them occupation. It was felt that, though an animal by itself was well, an animal doing something was much better. 
the mere fact of companionship and silent sympathy is enough to interest but without this sculptured animals are stupid as our lions in trafalgar square which among other faults have that of being much too well done so jones's cat prince picked up a little waif in the court and brought it home and the two lay together and were much lovelier than prince was by himself footnote prince was my cat when i lived in bernard's inn he used to stray into mr kemp's rooms by my landing mrs kemp's sister brought her child to see them and the child playing with prince one day made a discovery and exclaimed oh it's got pins in its toes butler put this into the way of all flesh End of footnote. Holbein at Basel. How well he has done night in his crucifixion. Also he has tried to do the Alps, putting them as background to the city, but he has not done them as we should do them now. I think the tower on the hill behind the city is the tower which we see on leaving Basel on the road for Lucerne. I mean, I think Holbein had this tower in his head. Van Eyck. Van Eyck is delightful, rather in spite of his high finish than because of it. De Hoog finishes as highly as any one need do. Van Eyck's finish is saved, because up to the last he is essentially impressionist. That is, he keeps a just account of relative importances, and keeps them in their true subordination one to another. The only difference between him and Rembrandt or Velasquez is that these, as a general rule, stay their hand at an earlier stage of impressionism. Giotto there are few modern painters who are not greater technically than Giotto, but I cannot call to mind a single one whose work impresses me as profoundly as his does. How is it that our so greatly better should be so greatly worse, that the farther we go beyond him, the higher he stands above us? Time no doubt has much to do with it, for great as Giotto was, there are painters of today not less so, if they only dared express themselves as frankly and unaffectedly as he did. Early Art the youth of an art is, like the youth of anything else, its most interesting period. When it has come to the knowledge of good and evil, it is stronger, but we care less about it. Sincerity. It is not enough that the painter should make the spectator feel what he has meant him to feel. He must also make him feel that this feeling was shared by the painter himself, bona fide and without affectation. Of all the lies a painter can tell, the worst is saying that he likes what he does not like but the poor wretch seldom knows himself, for the art of knowing what gives him pleasure has been so neglected that it has been lost to all but a very few. The old Italians knew well enough what they liked and were as children in saying it. End of section 13 Recording by Colleen McMahon